Good morning. Uh, when Pastor Jeremy said just a few hours left in December, it's just a few hours left in 2023. Did that not strike you as, wait, what just happened kind of a thing, right? Wow, where did it go? Happy New Year's Eve to you all. Church, saints, holy one, called to be righteous, blameless, and and all that our in Christness means. I hope we don't hope we don't take that for granted. Let me pray before the message today, and I'm just going to kind of share from a personal experience happened uh, with me a few months ago. Uh, the effects of which are still with me today, and I hope continue to be with me until I breathe my last. So please join me as we go before the throne. So Father, here we are. It's the end of 2023. No doubt, Lord, much uh, as, we, as we reflect, as we review, much to be celebrated. <clears throat> Fair amount of sadness, many challenges. I guess, Lord, I'm reminded of 2023 of this is, as I shared with somebody earlier, this is life, this side of Genesis 3, and yet there's hope. Like this season is about hope. It was mentioned, uh, one of the folks, about Jesus came. It, without, the, without the birth, there is no crucifixion, resurrection. Lord, it's one package. Your son came. He was born to die so that we might live. May that reality, may that truth carry over into 2024, Lord, and all that it holds. Lord, as I was speaking with a friend earlier, Lord, would you give us the grace and the courage to, dare I say it, let you be you in our lives. Not to put you in a box, not to confine you, not to fashion you after our image, but God, be God in us, for us, around us in 2024. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're kind of, <clears throat> kind of sort of in no man's land, right? Like this is December 31st and tomorrow is 2024. Like what do we do with that? So I thought I would share with you <clears throat> something that uh, I, I don't think I'm going out on a limb by saying was a defining moment in my life. And it just happened four months ago. We all have those moments, right? Where we can look back, like if you've gone around the sun enough times, you can look back and you see, especially as a Christian, wow, didn't see it at the time, but that was God. That was God. That was God. And there are these turning points, right? We're at a kind of a crossroads. We can go this direction or we can go this direction. And those defining moments define us, don't they, to a certain degree. Those defining moments form us. We might not be able to change our past, but in this present moment, we can make decisions that will impact our future, yes? So I hope that the, the message today from personal experience <clears throat> speaks to your heart 
Uh, I'm going to, uh, I'm just going to, I'm going to let you into my life a little bit. I'm going to tattle on myself a little bit. Um, I'm not necessarily proud of everything I'm going to share with you, but it is real and it did happen and I'm, I'm sharing it with you, uh, hopefully as a source of encouragement for you. Is that fair? Okay. Because I'm the only one here who has issues. <clears throat> so I've titled the message, Confessions of an Imperfect Saint. And that's me. And I confess that before you. So this, this whole thing, it started, but it didn't start. What I'm about to share with you was actually the culmination of years of wrestling with God about a certain thing. It was uh, in early September. It was a Monday evening. And uh, for several days leading up to that evening, I had been earnestly praying for a situation that involved somebody very, very dear to me. And God was absent. God was nowhere to be found. I'm like, what the heck? Are you real or are you not? And this is just, I'm just sharing some things that were running through my mind throughout this week that culminated on this Monday evening. A couple of questions I want to throw your way to kind of set the stage. Have you ever felt like your prayers did nothing but bounce off the ceiling and ricochet endlessly around the room. Have you ever experienced that desert-like experience that has been called a Sahara of the heart? Have you been there? If you have, then you can relate to a degree of where I was at on that Monday night. God, where are you? So, over the course of several days, absent, right? At, at least from my perspective. Nowhere to be found. Missing in action. AWOL. Have you ever experienced that with God? Maybe you're there now. So, I told God, and I, this is what I'm about to share with you, is verbatim. Okay? I told God, you're just going to do what you're going to do anyway. My prayers don't matter, so you know what? You do you. I'm done. I don't care. That is word for word. And for the next 72 hours or so, from my perspective and from my initiative, I did not make one move toward God in prayer. Not one. I was fed up. Like, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not playing this game. Whew. Like, this is real life, right? Here's my wrestle. And that Monday night was the culmination of years of wrestling with this question. Do my prayers matter? Do my asks of God 
make any difference at all? Or is God just going to do what God is just going to do? Now understand, there's a fair amount of complexity to that question. But the question remains. Like did Jesus' prayers matter? Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, is our elder brother. That's, that's, that's scripture. He is, he's our Savior. He's our Lord. He's a lot of other things. But he's the firstborn of the new creation. Did his prayers matter? Did his prayers matter? to? So that's, that was my wrestle for years and years and years. And I don't know. It was one of those things like, you know, eventually you're going to have to deal with this. Right? But you kind of suppress it and suppress it and suppress it because it means diving into like, is this going to impact my view of God and those kinds of things? So that's kind of the stage for a passage of Scripture that God himself in his graciousness brought me to. So I encourage you, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 11 or get to Luke chapter 11 somehow, some way. My wrestle, do my prayers matter? Luke chapter 11. This is... uh, with the exception of, of verse 1-ish, this is Jesus speaking. So what we're going to walk through come from, came from the lips of Jesus. It's about prayer. Verses 1 through 4. He, Jesus, was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, Teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. He, verse 2, Jesus said to them, now this is familiar territory for many of us. Whenever you pray, say, Father, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we, also, for we ourselves also forgive everyone in debt to us and do not bring us into temptation. This is the beginning of Jesus answering their, their, their request, answering the disciples' ask. Lord, teach us to pray. The remaining verses all the way through verse 13, Jesus is going to continue to respond to that ask. Lord, teach us to pray. So if I, could, if, I could, if I could call, it's typically called the Lord's Prayer, right? If I could call this a divine prayer aid that Jesus taught his disciples and by extension teaches us. It's an illustration and asking of the Father for the following. And you can see this on the, uh, on the screen. Middle part of verse 2, what Jesus is teaching the boys about prayer. And and ever since this this Monday evening and this encounter with with Luke chapter 11, I have consistently been praying two prayers. Lord, teach me to pray. And Lord, teach me about prayer. Teach me to pray and teach me about prayer. So Jesus initially talks about 
a revelation and a knowledge of the Father's holiness. That's going to be super important as we walk through this passage. Last part of verse 2, manifestations of kingdom life. Your kingdom come. Verse 3, does it strike you as odd that the king of the, the creator of all, the one who spoke, and it happened and it was good, things into existence, actually cares about our daily needs, including food? Like that matters to God. Matter matters to God. The stuff of life matters to God. Daily provision, first part of verse 4, so important. There's a whole message or a series of messages in this one verse. Forgiveness and forgiveness. There's an assumption in this prayer by Jesus. Responding to the boys, ask, Lord, teach us to pray. There's an assumption that when we go before our Heavenly Father seeking forgiveness, that we will have already extended forgiveness to those who have wronged us. There's an assumption here. Now, if we put our cards on the table, that's not always how we pray, is it? We don't always ask for forgiveness while prior have forgiven those who have offended us. But that's the assumption in this prayer. Forgivenness assumes forgiveness. It's real life. Last part of verse 4, protection and deliverance. So Jesus sets the stage. Okay, you asked, here it is, in a nutshell. But he's not finished. I also want us to notice that in verse 2, Jesus joins together two understandings of God. Father, your name be honored as holy. Now, we'll just skate right by this if we don't stop and listen for what's happening here. Father, your name be honored as holy. Theologian J.I. Packer, in his incredible book, Knowing God, says this. The whole spirit of the Old Testament religion was determined by the thought of God's holiness. Packer then picks up with the New Testament. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new, and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. In verse 2, so important we understand this. In verse 2, Jesus is teaching about an unprecedented access to the Father. If we, if we were to fast forward to the very, very, very end of Jesus' life, when he breathes his last in Matthew's Gospel... Jesus breathed his last, and immediately, if you know the story, what happened to the curtain in the temple? 
It was rent. It was split in two from top to bottom. Through the very life of Jesus, through his broken, blood-battered body, new access to the Father, which humanity had not witnessed since the Garden of Eden, had not experienced since the Garden. So Jesus is teaching about an unprecedented access to the Father. Through who? Through Himself, our Savior, our Redeemer, and as I said earlier, our elder brother. So I want you to keep... We doing good? Everybody okay? We, we ready? This is... Whew. Now keep in mind that keep that in mind as we walk through verses five through eight. And I want you to notice, so Jesus is still answering the question. Lord, teach us to pray. He didn't just give them a formula. Now he's going to give them a story to kind of to kind of unpack that. Notice in this story, in this parable, how the word friend, it's crucial. How the word friend dominates. Verses 5 through 8. He, Jesus, also said to them, Suppose. Suppose one of you has a friend. Suppose one of you has a friend. Jesus has just invited the boys into the story. Suppose one of you has a friend. And goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend. Second time. Lend me three loaves of bread because a friend, third time, of mine on a journey has come to me and I don't have anything to offer, uh, to offer him. I want to hit the pause button because there's a lot of friends and pronouns going on here and if we, if we like blow right by it, we're going to... So Jesus has invited the disciples into the story. And here's where we're at so far. Suppose one of you, one of the disciples, suppose one of you has a friend. And you, one of the disciples, goes to that friend, okay, at midnight. So far, so good. Because another friend of yours has come to you for lodging, for food, and the cupboards are bare. You go to your friend and you ask. So that's where we're at. There's three dudes in this story, three friends in this story, okay? There's the disciple, one of the disciples, they're supposed to enter the story, they have a friend who comes to them. Like, back at, there were no Motel 6s back then. Okay? When people traveled, you stayed in houses. Hospitality was paramount in that culture. Like, it was everything. And to not show hospitality was like the end of the world. Like, you just didn't do that. We don't, we kind of don't get that in our 21st century Western mindset, do we? Hospitality is still on the table. We just don't practice. And I'm, I'm not saying, like, let everybody in your house and all like that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm trying to help us to enter this story. It's about hospitality. So one of the disciples has a friend. Jesus says, suppose, imagine, a friend comes to you, cupboards are bare, so you go to another friend. That's what, did I muddy the waters? Did that help? We, we tracking? 
Okay, so we pick it up, verse 7. Then he will answer from inside and say, don't bother me. The door is already locked. My children have gone to bed. I can't get up to give you anything. Jesus inserts himself again. I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his friend's key word here, key phrase in the uh, Christian Standard Bible, shameless boldness. I'm going to unpack that. Yet because of his friend's shameless boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So we need to kind of walk through this. The parable opens by Jesus himself with a thought-provoking suppose. I'm going to paint you a picture. I'm going to give you a scenario. So Jesus is like, when God talks... He doesn't talk just to hear himself talk, right? Jesus is not just telling a story to tell a story. He is still answering the question. He is still answering the disciples' ask, Lord, teach us to pray. This is a continuation. Suppose one of you has a friend. Jesus' supposing actually amounts to a question. And the question sounds like this. Could you ever imagine a friend of yours showing up at your home late at night and then you finding yourself having to go to another friend's house to borrow some food to bail you out because your cupboards are bare and he proceeds to blow you off with, with, with excuses like, uh, the door's locked, kids have been to bed sleeping for hours now, go away. Could you ever He's posing, through the story, he's posing this question to the disciples. Could you ever imagine that happening? And of course, in that culture, not, no. This parable is set up to solicit a negative, very negative, like an emotionally negative response from the disciples. Something along these lines is what they should have been thinking. Wait, what? Absolutely not. Not in a zillion years. Not in a month of Sabbath. No way ain't happening. That's what the story was meant to evoke from the disciples. Are you kidding me? This wouldn't happen. Because you see, it would have been unthinkable in that culture that the scenario that Jesus just proposed could have actually happened. Now, listen to Jesus' commentary in verses 9 through 12 on his own story. He's still answering the question, Lord, teach us to pray. Verse 9, So I say to you, Ask, and it will be given uh, to you. The Greek tense here is continuous. Keep on asking. So I say to you, keep on asking, and it will be given to you. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. Verse 10. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Jesus is saying exactly you're right. There's no way this could happen. So, ask. So, 
Seek, sow, knock. Now everything in this entire passage hinges on a single Greek word in verse 8. Translated in the CSB, as I highlighted a little bit earlier, as shameless boldness. Shameless boldness. This particular word evolved over time to have two meanings, one positive and one negative. And I want to qualify negative, at least negative, from our Western mindset. But that's not the mindset that this story is told in. This story is told in a Middle Eastern mindset, and we have to set aside our 21st century Western mindset to enter the story to come to understand what was happening. The positive meaning is persistence. And it's this positive meaning that most translations emphasize, probably due to the, to the asking, the seeking, the knocking in verse 9, which, as I said earlier, is in a continuous tense. Persistence. This interpretation means that the friend who is persistent is the one knocking on the friend's door asking for bread. That's who the persistent one is referring to. So it all seems to make sense, except that it doesn't. Except using the positive meaning doesn't do justice to Jesus' words in verses 11 and 12. Look at them with me. What father, there's that word again, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? This is absurdity. And this is why I think that uh, the, the shameless boldness doesn't refer, or the persistence doesn't refer to the one knocking on the friend's door. It actually refers to the friend inside the house. So the shameless boldness refers to the friend who is inside the house who initially not going to get up, making excuses, kids are sleeping, too late, go away. Further, to kind of support my claim, there is no example of this Greek word ever being used in the first century to mean persistence. Nor does it contain this meaning in the previous seven centuries in classical Greek literature. Now the negative meaning. The negative meaning, again, at least from our Western mindset, and the one most likely used in this context is translated shamelessness. Shameless boldness. Shamelessness literally without any shame. So which friend is shameless? The friend at the door or the friend in the house? In Jesus' culture, please hear this. Jesus' culture and still today in the Middle East, still today, it is a, it's, it's not a, in the West we operate from a Guilt forgiveness mindset. In the Middle East, in Jesus' day and still today, and in many parts of the world, it is an honor shame mindset. 
let me insert a quick story. Years ago, when I was pastoring, uh, a number of dudes began attending the church. And they were, they were kind of being mentored by a young man who I had shared Christ with, and he had rededicated his life. He owned a dance studio over in Naperville. And Christ began to permeate his life. And so he began to live out, what a concept, the gospel. And so four of these guys began attending the church, one by one by one. They all gave their life to Christ. One said, uh, PB, Pastor Bill, PB, I have a friend. He was in high school. I have a friend who I would love for her to, they, they, they weren't like dating or boyfriend, girlfriend. It was just, so the gospel had transformed him too. And now he wants this dear friend of his to come to saving faith in Christ. So is it, long story short, we began to meet almost weekly, walking through various passages of Scripture, wherever she was at, whatever she wanted to walk through, for about a year, almost weekly for about a year. Towards the end of that year, she said this, P.B., I am persuaded that Jesus is who he claimed to be and that Christianity is true. But she didn't stop there. She said, comma, but my family. She came, she was reared, she grew up in an honor-shame culture. And for her to not embrace the religion of her family, which was Buddhism, for her not to embrace the religion of her family would have shamed her family. I tell you that story to give you a sense of how powerful this this paradigm of doing life is still today in certain parts of the world honor shame a sense of shamelessness in that culture is actually a huge positive Stuart McAlpine in his book just asking says this to have a sense of shame or to know what has to be done not to lose face is a virtue. You'll see this up on the screen. The avoidance of shame was, in fact, the same as the retaining of honor. Avoiding shame is a virtue in that culture. It was in Jesus' day. In other words, Jesus' emphasis here is not on the nature of the need but rather on the character of the friend who was asked remember I keep inserting this Jesus is still responding to the disciples ask Lord teach us to pray he is still unpacking that ask it was because of the friends the one inside the house it was because of the friend's shamelessness that his friend, the one asking, 
could trust him that at such an hour, with such a request, he could have confidence in such, a, such an approach. In spite of how his friend felt, operating from an honor-shame culture, there's no way that this friend, if he has provision, he is going... Like, it's not going to happen. Like, that scenario would never have happened. So Jesus' point here is not on the ask. It's on the character. It's on the nature of the friend who is being asked. Now, verse 13. Now verse 13 comes into focus and makes sense. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This whole passage, all 13 verses, is what's, what was the ask? Lord, teach us to pray. It's all about our holy, heavenly Father. It's all about His character. It's all about His nature. The ask, although not unimportant, is secondary. The character, the nature of our heavenly Father is primary. And so I'm sifting through all, with what I shared with you on the beginning of the message. I am I can't tell you how many times I read this passage like working through it and sifting through it. Lord, what is happening here? I want to suggest to you, based upon this passage, three observations. Observation number one. Our Holy Heavenly Father is an honorable friend. This is, Lord, teach us to pray. This is all about, this is all about the Father. That's what this is about. It's about who He is. Second, our Holy Father is a much more friend. Like, we always get much more from our Father than what we ask. Always. Why? Because that's who He is. He is a much more friend. Third observation. Our Holy Father is an as much as He needs friend. Now be careful with these because we have a certain perspective on the situation, right? Whatever the situation was. I had a certain perspective on this situation. The one that, that prompted my, Lord, I'm done, you do you, I'm, I'm, you're just going to do what you... I had a certain perspective, right? God has a certain perspective, Right? And they don't always mesh. They don't always match. You and I, newsflash, you and I do not have, we do not possess as finite creatures, it's not in us, to have a God's eye view of any situation. We don't know what's been happening for days or weeks or years that that led to this point. God does. We don't know. Like, in situations like this, it is never only about us. Ever. 
It's always about God primarily, ourselves and others. So maybe sometimes the questions we should be asking in times like this is, Lord, how will this impact me as well as others? Because you know, like we're told as Christians, keep your Christianity to yourself. Like keep your belief about those things that are ultimate to yourself. How? Our beliefs about ultimate things pervade our lives. We can't segment them. Like they're that deep in us. It's our worldview. You can't leave that at home. They come with us. Amen? They, they inform... It's our heart. It's what, what's buried in the depths of our soul. We can't leave that stuff at home. Can't live a schizophrenic life like that. So, God has a perspective. And it's His perspective that is always the true perspective. But you'll never get there if you can't trust his character. That's what this is all about, gang. Do you trust your heavenly Father's character to do what is right? To do what is actually in your best interest, even if you don't think it's in your best. That's where I was, man. That's where I was. If I'm being real and honest here, I thought I had the God's eye view of my situation. I did not. But I thought I did. So be careful with these much more as much as He needs. As much as God knows you need. And God knows you better than you know you often say this to my students nobody can kid you like you nobody can kid me like me like we have an incredible capacity to rationalize and that's why because this is because that's who God is that's his character that's why I will continue to ask I will continue to seek I will continue to knock because of his character because he's my honorable my honorable much more as much as I need friend so my question at the very beginning do my prayers matter do your prayers matter did Jesus Prayers matter. Dallas Willard, in his excellent book, The Divine Conspiracy, says this. God's response to our prayers is not a charade. He does not pretend that he is answering our prayer when he is only doing what he was going to do anyway. Remember, that was my hiccup. Like, that is a major piece for me. You're just going to do what you're going to do anyway. Doesn't matter. Determinism. 
Our requests really do make a difference in what God does or does not do. The idea that everything would happen exactly as it does regardless of whether we pray or not is a specter that haunts the minds of many who sincerely profess belief in God. It makes prayer psychologically impossible, replacing it with dead ritual at best. Last I checked, my relationship with my Heavenly Father is just that. It is a relationship. What I'm learning, that's present tense, is that what's most important in my relationship with my Heavenly Father is not my posture before Him, but rather His posture before me. It's about first knowing His nature before sharing my need. Let me say that again. It's about first knowing His nature before sharing my need. In the very act of His hiddenness, <clears throat> God was not absent. He was not AWOL. He was not missing in action, obviously. In the very act of His hiddenness, God is slowly weaning me of fa how dare I, right? But we do it. Of fashioning Him into my image. By refusing to be... It's hard for me to say these words in one sense. By refusing to be my puppet on a string or my gene in a bottle, God is actually freeing me from my faults, idolatrous, idolatrous conceptions of Him. So you see, my very sense of God's absence, my Sahara of the heart was actually God's unsuspected grace. I would not be here today preaching this message to you. I'm confident of that. Were it not for God's silence. His grace of silence. So as we exit 2023, and we head into 2024. I encourage you, maybe you want to do this. This is what I've been doing for the past four months. These two prayers, among many others, of course, but these two, man. Lord, teach me to pray. And Lord, teach me about prayer. May that be our heart as God continues to unfold himself to us in 2024. Let's pray.